Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship with you. And now open the word of God with you as we go into the portion and time of our worship where we hear and listen to the message. Uh, we have been studying the book of Samuel as of last week, and this is our second sermon into this sermon series. So if you would, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verses 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 36. If you have a pew Bible or a Bible in front of you, the page number should be 200. And 12, again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to 36. Let us all rise for the reverence of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give, me the give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the woman who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me, 
I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. My friends, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. That we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Many of you have seen and perhaps even experienced a scandal in the church. Maybe it wasn't as shocking as it was more disappointing, frustrating, maybe even saddening. Scandal in the church is something that the media will still report on today, as secular as they are. Because I think there is something that stays with us when we hear about sin that has gone unchecked and allowed to run rampant in the church by its leaders. And perhaps one may wonder then, where is God in dealing with this sin? especially if it has been transgressed by one of its leaders. It is indeed a dark time when it seems that all we can do is watch as leader after leader fall and succumb to the devil's wiles, become indifferent to the faith, or lead unholy lives. It is possibly most disappointing when we find 
that the light of the world was really a part of the darkness. Where is God in all of this? In our reading this morning, we saw that the Israelites were also facing such a time. The hegemony of Hophni and Phinehas is now exposed. And we see that when leaders are corrupt, God is seemingly mocked and the people suffer. But God did not abandon his people. He is ever present here as he was then in both judgment and mercy. But judgment began at the house of God. Now, a few points for us as we go through sections of this passage. And the first point is that God is still at work. From 11 to 26, we see that God is still at work. It should be noted that the very last stanza of Hannah's prayer ended with the judgment of God and the destruction of his enemies. There were the proud in verse 3, the mighty who prey on the feeble in verse 4, and the wicked in verse 9, and those who would dare to challenge God, viewing him as some sort of rival, as if they were on equal standing in verse 10. Who were they? Who were these enemies of God? Were they the Canaanites? Were they the Philistines? No, they were the priests of Israel. When the leaders are corrupt, the worship runs amok. In verse 13, it says that this was the custom or common practice. This didn't just happen once in a blue moon. It happened on a regular basis. A worshiper is cooking his portion of the peace offering for the post-sacrificial meal. Mind you, in chapter 1, we saw that Elkanah and his family would also enjoy a post-sacrificial meal, and this worshiper would also come enjoy a post-sacrificial meal that he and his family would enjoy together. A servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork, mid-boil, plunge it into the pot, and take whatever the fork would hold and bring it up to the priest's quarters. Who, do they, who did they do this to? They did it to all the Israelites who went to offer sacrifices at Shiloh. The priests, by the way, were already allotted a portion of the meat of the sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 7, verses 28 to 36, we see that they were allotted the breast and the right leg. But this fork man would go up to stab him some more. But it gets worse. Because in verse 15, it says, moreover, that Hebrew word gum, right? This was used as a marker to say, and if that wasn't bad enough, moreover, before the fat was burned in honor of the Lord, these thugs and lackeys would demand the fresh uncooked raw meat from the worshiper. And if the worshiper would tell them to wait at least until the fat has been burned, he would even go, you could take as much as you want after that. What they would do is they would threaten the worshiper with physical force and violence. You may think that now that you've read this, 
the order is flipped, right? Because isn't the post-sacrificial meal post? And this was obviously pre-sacrifice. And then you would be correct. Chronologically, it is. The moreover is highlighting the weight of the offense. Concerning the offering in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 25, it says this, For every person who eats of the fat of an animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. This was blatant disregard for God's law and his regulative principle for worship. It was an outright offense against God, and it doesn't end there. You see, when someone who claims to be a worshiper and their worship is corrupt, just as we've seen when scandal is uncovered in modern-day leaders, there is always more that is yet to be revealed. And everyone in Israel knew about it. They were sleeping with the woman who tended the tabernacle, the place of worship. Verse 12 has already given us the prologue of what we were about to witness. These were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That is the literal translation. They did not know the Lord. But it means they couldn't care less about God. These were the spiritual leaders of the people of God and they couldn't care less. For God, they only cared about themselves. When we see people using the name of God, but all their actions point to their narcissistic egos, immorality and scandal are not a surprise, but they are a tragedy. But if you are a careful reader of the text, God isn't silent in this passage. He isn't absent. With every offense and tragedy, there is an insertion in the narrative. Before the worthless sons of Eli were committing their exceedingly atrocious acts, starting from verse 12, we see that in verse 11, Samuel was ministering to the Lord. When these young men were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt in verse 17, in verse 18, Samuel is ministering before the Lord. Even when the moral failings of the son were being pointed out and not being listened to in verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow. And after the Lord sends his prophet to tell of the destruction of Eli's household, we see in the beginning of chapter 3, Samuel was ministering to the Lord. These passages show us that even though you may not have initially noticed it, God is already working. He is preparing for his people a godly leader. Even though Eli's worthless sons seemingly dominates this narrative, God is still very much at work. And for us, sometimes we can't see past the darkness. We can't see past the scandals, the shame. But in the middle of the darkest moments, God is quietly preparing and providing. I read this story about a B-17 bomber in World War II. It's like, if you look at a picture of it, it's like a bomber with these four propellers. And this B-17 bomber was uh, doing a bombing run over a German city during World War II. And during the raid, uh, Nazi 
anti-aircraft guns would actually hit the fuel tanks of the bomber. What the pilot noticed was there was no explosion, however. And so the morning after the bombing, the pilot went to the crew chief to ask for the shell, at least the shell of the, you know, the anti-aircraft gun, so that he could keep it as a souvenir. And the crew chief told him this. He said, actually, there were 11 shells that hit the fuel tanks, and none of them exploded. The shells were sent to the armorers to get them diffused. And then they saw that intelligence, military intelligence, came to pick them up. The armorers had found that the shells contained no explosive charge. They were all empty, except for one. Inside the one, there was a rolled-up note, but it was written in Czech. Intelligence finally found someone who could read Czech, and this was the translation. This is all we can do for you now. There were Czechs who were compelled to work in a munitions plant for the Nazis. They didn't do anything outlandish. They didn't do something bold or dramatic. But what they did proved to save that pilot and possibly many others from imminent death. Many times, God's work isn't noisy or loud. It isn't dramatic. And so we can be tempted to think that God has abandoned his people. But for those with ears to hear, know that this is often how God works his redemptive plan. Not in a great and powerful wind, nor in an earthquake, nor in a fire, but in a low whisper. Not in radiance and all glory, but in a humble manger. We can be discouraged when we see Hophni and Phinehas in control, destroying the integrity of the house of God, but God is showing us little Samuel walking around in Shiloh. The second point is God's kindness. God's kindness, I want to take from verses 19 to 21, because there is more to verse 18 when Samuel was ministering before the Lord. There is a little section provided for us to see that even after Hannah had devoted her child to God and his service, she would come annually during the sacrifice and would make him a robe to wear. Hannah didn't stop loving her son once he was given to the Lord to his service. To provide a robe that would fit her son every year would be to know her son despite the distance. And with Eli's blessing, the Lord grants Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, three additional sons and two daughters. This is quite the magnificent scene. And one, maybe one couldn't help but to perhaps notice the stark difference then between Elkanah and Hannah versus Eli. In verse 19, you see a mother's love. In verse 22, you see a father's sorrow. In verse 20, you see Eli's blessing. In verse 22, you see his rebuke. In verse 21, you see God's provision, his giving. And in verse 25, you see God's judgment, his taking away. But this is what is highlighted in this portion. It was grace, like her namesake, 
that she received Samuel. But she didn't ask for herself. She asked for the Lord. And so it was only right that she give him over to God. However, God is the one who gives grace upon grace and blesses her with five more children. It's as if God loves to pour out mercy upon his people. In Mark chapter 10, verse 28 and 30, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age of age to come eternal life. It's as if God is taking what is low in the world and raising them high and is taking what's high and bringing them down low. And so Jesus ends that statement in verse 31 of Mark 10 by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We see this truth analogous to freedom also in relationships. In marriage, you give up your freedoms. We sacrifice for our spouses. You don't get to do anything you want like you did when you were single. There is a price to pay, but there are privileges that are also given up. But what you receive is far greater than what you sacrifice. You receive a partner with you to journey for the rest of your life in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. And that's what's invaluable. And this is where Elkanah and Hannah now bids us adieu from the story, presumably because they need to take care of their five rambunctious and noisy children. They need to move them back to the sanctuary, right? But they remained as witnesses. They remain as witnesses for us of God's incredible kindness. Here's the third point, the threat of judgment. In verses 22 to 25, even though Eli was very old, he heard about the patently sick behavior of his sons, and apparently everyone knew. All the people were even talking about it. Imagine turning a place where people would come to confess their sins into a place where people committed sins, and egregious ones at that. Eli would try to warn them of the consequences of their continued actions, even saying that if you sin against people, God would mediate for him, but if you sin against God, who's going to save you? But the sons did not listen to him because God had decided to put them to death. Now it's good that we stay a little on that verse. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Because here's how we might want to read it. We might want to read it this way. Hophni and Phinehas continued to sin and not heed the multiple warnings and so consequently God had to put them to death. The text does not say that. 
it says that they didn't listen to their father's voice because God had decided to put them to death. Hophni and Phinehas resisted as a result of God's judgment. And God's judgment is always perfect and is always just. He is never unjust. He is never unfair. And this is showing us that in all their lives, they remain so firm in their rebellion against God that God will then in turn confirm that rebellion by making them utterly deaf to even the pleas of their father. So this should serve then as instruction for the one who still has yet time to listen. It's the fool that says in his heart, I can repent tomorrow. If you can hear the call to repentance today, the time to repent is today. Repent and believe the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Critics will say that this is not the God they believe because after all, isn't God the God of mercy and forgiveness? And some will even do these intellectual gymnastics to somehow conclude that therefore everyone will be saved and then there is no hell. But this story should prove to be a warning to people like that to beware of alleging God as deficient in mercy or denying justice. Just because we cannot comprehend God's will at times doesn't mean that we know better. In fact, I can tell you for certain that if God always agrees with you and your judgments, that's not God. If God always agrees with you, That's not God who you believe in. Instead, when we see God's judgment here, it should lead the listener to tremble before God who can make a sinner deaf to even hear the call to repentance. The time to repent is now. Here's the fourth point. The intrusion of God's word. In verses 27 to 36 we see a man enter, a prophet enter the scene. We don't know where this man came from, what his name is, what he was doing. In fact, we don't know anything about him other than the fact that he is a man of God. And this man of God comes to Eli with the word of God. Even though Eli rebuked his sons for their egregious offenses, as far as we can tell, he did no other action. There were no fines, no punishments, no suspension, even temporarily from their priestly duties, no expulsion from the office. There was no church discipline. One of the key characteristics of a church, of a gathered assembly of saints, is church discipline. If you don't have church discipline, you don't have a church If there are true believers then in a gathering, God will dismantle that gathering so that then you could go to a true church. So when I heard of scandal, or when I hear of scandal, I'm more dismayed. Not that a sinner would sin, but I'm rather more dismayed at the leadership who would not discipline the sinner. 
when the church was suffering from great apostasy, it was, it was the reformers who stood against the powers at the time with their lives on the line to teach what the word of God says and why we should follow the word rather than traditions of man. And the reformers came up three key marks of a church that would allow someone to determine whether the church they were attending was a true church. And the first mark was the gospel is preached. A true church preaches the gospel. It preaches about repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. And the second mark is the administration of the sacraments. And we know that through the word of God, there are two sacraments that we are to keep, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And they would even go on to say that if you took away the sacraments, you took away the church. But here's the third marker. The third mark is discipline. And that would include spiritual censures, admonishment, suspension from the sacraments, and ultimately excommunication. It was designed, this discipline was designed to reclaim those that would stray to guard the purity of the church and to protect the honor of the name of her Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at some places that call themselves churches today, there is heinous sin. That should be no surprise. But there is no church discipline. And that is what is more terrible. So let's look at the judgment that God pronounces. In verses 27 to 28, God actually reminds Eli of the grace that was previously given, the call of the privilege of priesthood, the benefits thereof, the honor that it bestowed. And then here is the charge in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? Then in verse 30 is the pronouncement of the judgment. Eli's family line will be decimated. And there is a sure sign that you will know this to be true. Both Eli's son would die in a single day. And finally, there is a promise of a faithful priest in place of Eli's family. Returning to verse 29, Eli should have known better, but he chose to honor his sons above God. There is a truth for even our believers here. You can put yourself in the place of God when teaching your children, when you never correct, when you never admonish, when you don't rebuke your children, when it comes to the things that the Lord commands from His people. And you aren't showing your child kindness. This is brutal cruelty. If you love your child, you will teach them the truth and when that verbal reproof is not enough, when it's not enough just to say something, there is discipline to show them the severity of their actions. If you let your children continue to tolerate sin, God will then eventually take back his rightful seat as judge. Not only for your children, but this will be applicable to anyone who knows someone that is in deliberate sin, and yet does little to nothing to stop them. This is a 
gutless compassion and empty niceness. The Bible teaches us that those that ignore God's law essentially despises his holiness. The church has been called to protect the honor of God and yes, even above human feelings. You know, there's this notion of being winsome today. But winsome as being someone who would never offend, never challenged, but merely showing the beauty of God as to win over people to Christ. And I'm afraid that they are in la-la land. No prophet, no apostle, and most of all, our Lord Jesus never did only this. Even to those that he would show incredible compassion to, people who would be caught in the middle of adultery, he would forgive them, but then he would admonish them by saying, go and sin no more. You can't share the gospel without telling people of their sin. There is no good news without the bad news. And what we are being shown here is that God will preserve the true church, those that follow his express commands when it comes to the gospel. Because when we see a harsh word here, it is at the same time a saving word, a merciful word, a protecting word for the people of God. You're so worried about offending people that you have lost sight of sharing anything relating to the gospel and hardening your own heart in the process. This is a warning to those who think that they are believers. The true church will be preserved and her false teachers will be removed. God's word assures it and it draws the dividing line. The dividing line is drawn by the word of God not by your feelings. And here's the final point. God's purpose in verse 35. However, even outright rebellion against God will not frustrate, it will not deter the purpose of God. Even when particular leaders are corrupt, even corrupt to the core, like Hophni and Phinehas, God will rule his people in spite of them. And this judgment prophecies a faithful leadership that will take their place. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So who is this faithful priest? Is it Samuel? I mean, if you look at the immediate context, it would seem so. However, if you go all the way to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, which is way later in Solomon's time, it says that the elevation of Zadok as high priest in the place of Abiathar is the fulfillment of the prophecy about the fall of the house of Eli. So then is that it? Is Zadok the faithful priest that the prophet is talking about here? I believe that the focal point here, however, about the determination of God to have a faithful priest is to raise up a faithful priest for his people. That's the focal point. The focal point is that he will raise up faithful priests for his people. 
He will have proper leadership for his flock. Judgment does begin at the house of God, like it says in 1 Peter chapter 4.17. And so it is God's will that he will build his house. Who's going to raise faithful leadership? It will be God. You know, we all kind of celebrate stories of athletes or people who eventually become successful when you listen to their grind oh i came from nothing and look at where i am look at all these troubled times i could have fallen but look how i've made it you can think of athletes you can think of rock stars rap stars whatever celebrity because people when they make it they have this story and we also join in that story because it is really nice to hear You have to wonder why that is. Why is that such a nice story? Why isn't just someone who gets born and gets like $3 trillion like, that's amazing. No one says that. But if you grow up poor, you hear stories, I came, you know, to this country with nothing and look at me now. I am a multi-millionaire. You hear stories like that and we really relate to that. Why is that? Because there is some truth to that. When you think about it, we are to relate to that because there is a truth, there is a line of truth flowing through stories like that. And that is God's story. Even though it may get really, really dark at times, even though we may not know where things are going, we have no idea, the fog is dense, the darkness is thick, we have no idea what our first step, next step will be afterwards. It's all throughout history, God has led his people. Even when it seemingly was that they had nothing, God would lead his people. Ultimately, this is a story of Jesus Christ as our high priest, as we've gone over in our last week's catechism. God would send his only son to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise in verse 35. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, Therefore he had, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But as Jesus, as high priest, we are never without a faithful priest ever again. And we are assured that God will continue to raise up faithful leaders that will mimic the perfect one. When you look at pastors and elders, there is a name that we call ourselves, and it is a name for a reason. Even though pastor literally means shepherd, when we refer to ourselves, you would hear many times as, um, many times we referring to ourselves as the under-shepherds. Because who are we under? We are under the perfect shepherd. Maybe priests, but we are under the faithful high priests and it is upon that rock jesus christ that rock upon the church upon which the church will be built when even the gates of hades will not be able to prevail against it no one can do anything to stop it what may seem humble what may seem weak is what god shows the world this is how i overturn and show you that i am strong in weakness And this is where we can place our trust, in the one that ever follows through his purpose, whether it's dark or light, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're weak or strong, 
It is God that follows through his purpose, and it is God, it is in God that we can place our trust. Let's pray. Faithful Father, we thank you for giving us an ever-faithful priest that we can rely on and look to, the high priest which has taken on the sins of the world and whom, in whom we can now place our trust all our lives with everything that we have. Oh God, I pray that you would give us a heart now of repentance, that we would turn from our sinful ways and turn back to you before it is too late. Forgive us of our rebellion, and we pray, God, that we would ever trust in you and hold on to the gospel. Let's take this time to pray. And in those areas which the Holy Spirit does convict you, by the word of God, lift up to God the sins of your heart, that you would become now clean as you rely and lean and place your trust on the one true high priest. Let's pray.